Hello, and welcome to the Iberian Knot, a history of the Spanish Civil War. Episode 3, The Pieces on the Board. I wanted to start this week's episode by thanking everyone from the History Podcast Facebook group. I appreciate all of your comments and encouragement. I was impressed to see the listener numbers shoot up after posting about the podcast, and I thank everyone who started listening after reading about it on there. I hope the series ends up meeting all of your expectations. This week, we'll see the end of the dictatorship of Primo de Rivera, a political referendum that would see King Alfonso XIII leave the country in disgrace, and a new government formed on a very shaky political foundation. We'll go over the first couple years of the Second Spanish Republic, right up to the point where things start to get really crazy. So after Primo de Rivera had lost the support of every power group within Spain in 1931, the natural successor to his seat of power was clearly the king, whose tacit approval Rivera had nominally been exercising power under throughout his dictatorship. Alfonso at first tried to govern like Rivera. He appointed a general as prime minister and ruled each province through his direct appointees. However, the king could see that he only had support from a small number of people in the government, clergy, and general population compared to their overall desire for a radical change in government. Republics were declared in many major cities and uprisings against the monarchical appointees governing different provinces were widespread. As many in the military were in agreement that the monarchy had to go, the king was unable to even think about putting down all of the disturbances. You see, during the dictatorship of Primo de Rivera, politics were suppressed, and the parliament, or as it was called, the Cortes, was literally deserted except for the rare formal ceremony here or there. Rivera had tried to create a patriotic union party, but it was all a facade with no real popular backing. However, Rivera was no fascist or ideologue himself. Although he would fire and exile anyone in government that opposed him, his reign actually didn't have any reported political executions. Some say that his dictatorship didn't last because he refused to stifle dissent like what was happening in other countries in Europe at the same time that were being taken over by authoritarian leaders. Halfway through his dictatorship, he'd even opened up freedom of the press, which immediately pilloried him and his policies. So what the king was taking over in 1931 was not an authoritarian government that controlled every aspect of government and the people's lives, but rather a country that had been held together by the personality of a single man. Rivera had failed to hold on to power in the end, it's true, but Rivera had had to work for his power over the course of his life. It wasn't handed to him because of the lottery of birth. The king had, however, had power and relinquished it, losing the faith of those who wanted a constitutional monarchy by relinquishing power to Rivera. He was also resented by some of the military for allowing Rivera to resign at all. Meanwhile, throughout Rivera's time as dictator, many political groups had formed and expanded. Many of them wanted Spain to be a republic and not any kind of monarchy. I think the hardest part of doing a history of the Spanish Civil War and talking about the politics and divisions therein that led to it is that there weren't clear black and white or north and south lines that neatly divided up people like, for instance, in the American Civil War where we literally had a Mason-Dixon line. In addition, many of the terms we use today to describe different political ideas can't easily be transposed onto people using the same terms in Spain in the 1930s. On top of all that, many people on the left, right, and center of this struggle would call people on the other side fascists or communists when the person they were referring to didn't actually belong to those particular groups. Kind of like what happens in American politics in 2019, but that's a whole other podcast. 
With all of these divisions in Spanish politics, there was also international divisions which had hardened after the end of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. But we'll get more into that when the Spanish Civil War actually takes off. So let's start with the most popular left-wing political ideology of the time, which would have been the anarchists. I gave them a quick overview in the last podcast just to avoid confusion with groups in 2019 that refer to themselves as anarchists. I would also point you to Mike Duncan's current series on the Russian Revolution, where he did an entire episode on the movement's founder, Bakunin, and how his philosophical and personal disagreements with Marx would lead him to found anarchism and Marx to found socialism. Anarchism was extremely popular in Spain in the major industrial centers and especially in Barcelona. Anarchism was anti-clerical and proudly atheistic in their pronouncements. Their union was the CNT-FAI, which stands for the Confederación Nacional del Trabajo and Federación Anarquista Iberia, in inglés, the National Workers' Confederation and the Iberian Anarchist Federation. I'll just refer to them as the CNT going forward. They can still be recognized by a flag consisting of two stacked right triangles, one red and one black. So these would have been a great deal of urban factory workers. The CNT was founded in 1927 in the city of Valencia. The anarchist philosophy seems to have had the goal of maximum economic equality without a hierarchical power structure. However, over time, it was accepted by those people putting that philosophy into practice that there would have to be gradual steps towards this utopian society. It was accepted that the best way to push for these ideas would be to create workers' unions, which would necessarily have to have some kind of leadership hierarchy. During World War I in Spain, there was a shortage of workers to supply the rest of Europe's war needs, so mostly poor people from the countryside in Spain had flooded into its big cities. Once there, they had joined unions that were mostly anarchist, but also some that were socialist in their philosophy. After the war, the businesses naturally wanted to lay off workers and lower wages as per supply and demand. This led to anarchist union leaders calling for strikes and protests. These protests would be put down by the military, which was directed by the government in Madrid. When the dictatorship fell, the anarchists showed a preference to a democracy versus a monarchy or dictatorship, but still held that any form of government was, in the end, bad for society as a whole. At the time, they were forming this very shaky new government in 1931. Millions of Spaniards in the most heavily populated cities were unwilling to support it in any way but rhetorically, but would not actually join the government. So this would inevitably lead to problems for the fledgling republic down the road. Next, you have the socialists, who were represented politically by the Partido Socialista Obrero Español, or PSOE, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party in English, and by the UGT, or Unión General de Trabajadores, General Workers' Union in English. The anarchists had gotten to the vast majority of factory workers, like I said earlier, but the UGT had the support of many different groups, including dock workers, building workers, coal miners in Asturias, and industrial areas around Bilbao. They had broken with the Russian Bolsheviks during the Russian Revolution and were respected by the country's bourgeoisie for their organization and willingness to work with the government and reach compromises with the businesses. They also started Casas del Pueblo, or socialist clubhouses, which housed the local trade union branch, but also served as a library and cafe for the communities in which they were located. The socialists gained even more popularity when they supported protests against military drafts to fight in Morocco. 
They stood for greater wages and benefits and were against a monarchy, but their leaders in many ways had become creatures of the bourgeoisie and power hierarchy due to the power, influence, and funds they commanded. In the large cities, many government workers, lawyers, doctors, and other people firmly in the middle or upper middle classes would have called themselves basically Republicans and would have had desired a government model like the one we have in the U.S. or something close to the U.K. if their king wasn't such a damp squib. These people often spoke multiple different languages, were well-read, and had traveled the world, and thought that a good philosophy based on logic would be sufficient to solve all of Spain's ills. These people lived in a bubble that really didn't have to see or deal with the reality of life that most Spanish lived through at that time in history. Representatives of this group would make up the majority of the members of the cabinet at the beginning of the Second Republic. These people had traveled in many cases to the UK, US, or France and thought, why can't we transport this multi-party representative governmental system that consists mostly of members of the upper classes to our own country? They were conveniently forgetting things like the American Civil War, or the huge racial disparities that the U.S. had even at the time, or the English Civil War and their other hundreds of years of internal conflicts before arriving at their current governmental stability. The French government, as the German invasion during World War II would demonstrate, would also show that they were no great model to follow, as they had been destroyed and built up again multiple times since the French Revolution. Spain had never had a French-style revolution, and although they had had a great deal of internal struggles, it was always between different ancient power groups like the army and the monarchy versus the church and the regionalists, instead of a full-on struggle between representative democracy versus authoritarianism or monarchy. These Republicans wanted to skip the violent revolution and go straight to stability, but they would realize neither goal. Moving further to the right, we have some of the ancient power groups that still hold sway over many communities and individuals. The largest political group that would coalesce in the first two years of the Republic on the right side would become the SEDA, or Confederación Española de Derechas Autónomas. In English, the Spanish Confederation of Autonomous Rights. This is confusing, as they didn't mean the autonomous communities like the Basque Country and Catalonia should have more rights. They meant autonomy like individual liberties as they understood them, like the right to go to church and send your kids to church schools, the right to inviolable private property, and keeping a traditional family structure. They represented the backlash against the anti-clerical and atheist socialists, communists, and republicans. Many members of the middle and upper classes on the right side of the political spectrum would be affiliated with this party. They were not necessarily supportive of the monarchy, but did seek a more structured society with strong leadership based on traditional ideals. On the far right, you have those who wanted a fascist dictatorship like Hitler was creating in Germany and Mussolini was in Italy. Many of these people could be found in the military and from the former government of Primo de Rivera. These people liked the very old idea from the Crusades when a sole military leader would be given extraordinary powers in order to eliminate the enemy in a town or province for the Christians. They wanted a Rivera that would really fight for conservative ideas in Spain, with violence if necessary, and not be willing to give up power so easily. Apart from that, they embraced many ideas originated on the far left of the spectrum, like the government takeover of industry, guaranteed quality of life, infrastructure improvements, and many other ideas that would help the nation grow in the 20th century. 
In contrast to these high-minded ideas, just like with their counterparts in Italy, many on the right had also singled out many groups within Spain who weren't really, in their minds, true Spaniards, or were outright working against Spain's interests internally. They were no fans of the communists, which they lumped together with socialists despite their disagreements with Russian Bolshevism and comparatively moderate actions. There was a general hatred of Jews, because anti-Semitism wasn't a solely German thing, nor was it a new idea in the 1930s in Europe. Then there were the Freemasons. Freemasons had been around forever, and while they generally committed to the ideals of liberty, fraternity, and equality, they were never really a political group per se. This wouldn't stop them from being an obsession on the Spanish right, and of Francisco Franco particularly, for the entirety of his possession of power throughout the 20th century. These proto-fascists were not pro-church by any means, as they saw it as competition for taking total internal control of the country, but as the majority of those on the right at that time were Catholic, they'd have to temper their distrust and dislike of the church to gain power. Hitler's successes in rebuilding Germany after the First World War and Mussolini's successful African escapades would make fascism a very intriguing model to follow for the Spanish right in the early 1930s. A future prominent leader of the fascist party in Spain that would come to be called the Falange Española de las Jones, the Spanish fascist party, or the Falange for short, would be Primo de Rivera's son, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. The Catholic Church could, at the beginning of the Second Republic, neither be said to be entirely on the right or the left side of the political spectrum. A large part of the Catholic middle class would have been on the right, but would have supported a conservative Republican government. The bishops and clerics on the upper end of the hierarchy would have leaned more conservative, while many parish priests in large cities in the poor countryside would vote against the king in the upcoming elections. As the Second Republic progressed and the Civil War started, those who identified as Catholic would be drawn more and more to the right side of politics for many reasons. So now we can kind of understand which groups were on the left, middle, and right of the political spectrum when politics as a way of running the government would suddenly become a thing again. The political philosophies of each individual Spaniard in the lead-up to the Second Spanish Republic cannot, of course, be known, but it can be said that they did not line up at all with the political boundaries you see on a map. There were also, of course, huge political differences within individual families, with each member pledging allegiance or at least having sympathies with one or more group. In the summer of 1930, a group of socialists, Catalonian nationalists, and Republican politicians came together in San Sebastián to formally agree upon and announce support for a republic. This would be correspondingly called the Pact of San Sebastián. Anarchists gave their tepid support, preferring that to a monarchy. A group of influential intellectuals in Madrid formed a group in support of the Republic at the same time. Wanting to try and test the waters and see what his support was like with the populace, Alfonso XIII set up municipal elections, as opposed to national ones, in April 1931. Supporters of the monarchy actually got enough votes to secure a majority of seats, but the Republican parties won the majority of votes in all of the large cities, and it was understood that in the countryside that large landowners and political bosses were able to sway the vote in favor of the king. Swaying the vote of the entire population in the cities was much more difficult, so the vote was seen as a huge defeat and referendum against the rights and privileges of the king. Many people surrounding the king, including many in the armed forces, argued for him to stay in the country and fight for power. Alfonso XIII instead understood that doing that would trigger a civil war, so he left Madrid only two days after the vote, which he himself had triggered. He said on his way out, 
I could very easily find means to support my royal powers against all comers, but I am determined to have nothing to do with setting one of my countrymen against another in a fratricidal war. You want to feel sorry for the guy and give him credit for at least postponing the bloodshed that would eventually be taking place. The fact was, however, that he couldn't understand the needs of Spain because he could not really understand Spain. He would never be able to do like Jasmine in Aladdin or Siddhartha Gautama before he became the Buddha and see the community for himself without being surrounded by advisors, sycophants, and courtesans. He lived in palaces, traveled the world, spoke multiple languages, and never wanted for anything in his life. Even in exile, he continued to live a life of luxury. Spain was a country going through a depression, with people starving and fleeing the country to escape abject poverty. It's hard to feel sorry for someone who never suffered even 1% as much as the average citizen under his power. In June 1931, another election was held to create a constitutional Cortes. This body would bring forth the Constitution of 1931, which would divide the nation due to what many considered its extreme nature in several areas. The left in Spain was beating out its right counterparts in elections, and the seat of power in Madrid was a left-wing stronghold. However, the country as a whole could be said to be divided about 50-50 between left and right-wing ideologies. The Constitution was written with socialists and republicans holding a majority, and these parties were together hostile to the church as an institution and the nobility as a class. I want to mildly digress to talk about the Catholic Church at this period in time and why so many people in political parties were hostile to its power and influence. It wasn't just that the parties on the left were atheists and thought that the teachings of the church were therefore based on superstition and illogical thinking, though there was some of that Voltarian thinking going on, for sure. It was also that the church controlled a lot of public education, real estate, and money in the country. The Jesuits were the educators of the nation from primary through higher education. The church as an institution had learned the lessons of their French counterparts and their experience during the French Revolution. They had therefore diversified their money into real estate and businesses, even bars and nightclubs, so that if the government ever wanted to expropriate it, they'd have to go through many front companies to even find out what the church actually owned. The church was also, as an institution, against some of the liberal ideas being pushed by the left, like female suffrage, sexual liberation, and secularization of education, civil marriage, and divorce. There was also a great desire on the left to take away a lot of the church's power and siphon away as much of their wealth as possible. The Constitution was a very liberal, high-minded document that contained many socialist and republican ideals. In fact, many of the rights established in that document are things that would not be considered radical ideas in 2019. Those ideas would include women's suffrage, right to divorce, freedom of religion, speech, and association, free national secular education, and the elimination of any special status that came with nobility. To some on the right, these were extremely radical steps to be taking so fast. In addition, there were some ideas that would seem radical even today. The Constitution explicitly banned the Jesuits and all religious institutions or individuals from offering education at all. This was radical, as many of the teachers and administrators, even in public schools, belonged to the clergy, and the cross was on the walls in schoolrooms. Private property owned by individuals and the church was opened up for takeover by the government, something like imminent domain in the U.S. but on steroids, if it was deemed beneficial for the state and with compensation for the owner. The compensation was to be determined by the government, so that didn't give landowners a lot of hope. Public services, railways, and even banks would be allowed to be nationalized under the new constitution. 
It also changed the flag from the red and gold one that we might recognize today and had been in place for centuries to a horizontal tricolor of red, yellow, and purple. The Constitution also guaranteed that those regions that wanted greater autonomy could have it, if not immediately, then over time. This was an issue that had divided the country for centuries, with people in places like Galicia, the Basque Country, Catalonia, Valencia, and Andalusia all wanting some sort or another of greater autonomy due to their unique environment, language, history, or other factors. This was a huge dividing line for the left and right-wing parties, as the right-wing felt that as long as those communities were given hope of more self-governments, Spain could never really be a peaceful country, as there would always be flare-ups in those regions. In their opinion, these regions needed to be brought to heel, not appeased. So, the king is gone, and Spain has a republic and a constitution. The problem is, from the very beginning, a good 50% of the population and political movements would just as soon spit on the Constitution as respect and follow it. This is not an auspicious start. I would compare it, in some respects, to if the United States had put in its Constitution originally the abolition of slavery. We can look back now and ask how a country could be founded on personal liberty and at the same time keep millions of people enslaved, but if the founders of the U.S. that shared that opinion had not compromised on that issue, we might not have become a nation at that time. We would have had a civil war over just that issues just about 100 years earlier, and there would have been no foundation and structure to come back to afterwards. But since the assembly of elected officials in Spain in 1931 felt that they did not have to negotiate with their counterparts on the other end of the political spectrum because they had a mandate from the people to implement their ideas, they went ahead and created a constitution according to their own ideals and refused to compromise with those on the other side of these polarizing political issues. The new constitution immediately made enemies in the Vatican, who considered the limits placed on the church in Spain as a violation of the civil liberties of its members. The government apparatus was being flexed against the church, but individual groups around the country were also bulgarizing and burning down churches, monasteries, convents, and other church property during this time. Pope Pius XI would later put out an encyclical called On Oppression of the Church in Spain in June 1933, opposing the actions taken by the government and individuals against the church since the Second Republic had been founded. Pius XI blamed the deadly sin of greed for the government's actions without really examining what would have motivated the church to accumulate so much wealth and power over the centuries or why so many people who lived in a Catholic country for millennia wouldn't be fans of the church any longer. After all, wasn't their founder a man who devoted himself to simple living while the upper-level members of the clergy drank and ate on fine silver and lived in giant marble palaces? Oddly enough, the first president of the government, Niceto Alcalá Zamora, was actually against the Articles of the Constitution that specifically enacted the separation of church and state and the breaking up of religious orders. He had resigned from the provisional government writing the Constitution in protest only to be elected to the presidency a few months later. So not only was a wide swath of the political class against these actions, but so was the man with the power to dissolve the government, although he would not immediately exercise it. You see, Alcala Zamora wasn't a closet fascist or conservative Catholic. As things progressed and politics became more and more polarized, his one-time opposition to the anti-Catholic parts of the Constitution would make him less and less trustworthy in the opinion of the left. The government they had set up was basically a parliamentary system without a king. The president of the republic was the head of state, taking the place of the king, and the president was elected by an electoral college that contained members of the sole unicameral assembly, called the Cortes, as well as elector citizens that would be elected by popular vote. The president, general courts, and a cabinet of ministers elected the prime minister. 
The president could dissolve the government at any time, but could also be removed if he did so more than twice in two years. This was an attempt to distribute power in a way that no single person could ever be totally in charge, checks and balances as it were, but it really provided for a minority in power to constantly be able to handicap the efforts of any majority. It also made it so that any leader that fell out of favor could be replaced in short order. No major change could be undertaken without swift backlash from one political party or faction, so not much was going to get done, no matter how liberal the articles of the Constitution were on paper. The new government's attempts to siphon power and wealth away from the nobility and church, although limited by bureaucracy and political infighting, created enemies with conservatives, but their inability to realize the appropriation of those groups' wealth and its redistribution to the masses was irritatingly slow for the far-left groups in the country that represented the workers in the cities and the peasants in the rural areas. They fervently believed in the ambitious ideals of the new government and wanted them implemented yesterday, not grindingly over the next few years. This is going to prove very difficult as the government was being stymied by more conservative factions in the Cortes. We already covered that Niceto Alcalá Zamora was the first president, and he was a Catholic Republican. Miguel Maura, also a Catholic Republican, became interior minister. All of the other members of the cabinet were anti-clerical or outright atheist. Alejandro Lerou was foreign minister. His early political history had been as a radical in Barcelona, and during that time he had said some pretty outrageous things that would terrify the right. In 1905, he'd given a speech where he said, Young barbarians of today, enter and sack the decadent civilization of this unhappy country, destroy its temples, finish off its gods, tear the veil from its novices, and raise them up to be mothers. Fight, kill, and die. Hmm. Now, 26 years later, LaRue was a comfortable and well-fed politician who had even deigned to serve in an advisory capacity under the Rivera dictatorship. This didn't stop people from continuing to label him a radical and even a Marxist. The Minister of Justice was Fernando de los Rios, who was in theory a socialist, but was more of a humanist than anything else. Cáceres Quiroga would be Minister of Marine, Álvaro de Albornoz, Minister of Development, and Marcelino Domingo, Minister of Education, and all three came from the Republican Radical Socialist Party. Finally, there was Manuel Lasagna as the Prime Minister and Minister of War, which would be a critical function in the lead-up to the revolt that sparked the Civil War. As I said earlier, all of these men, despite their histories, did not belong to the radical, but rather the intellectual and well-off left. These were men who didn't understand the desperation of many of the lower classes in Spain or the animosity that they had generated in the upper classes, military, and the church. To demonstrate exactly this, the government seemed to have gone out of its way to make enemies of the nobility, church, and the rich without realizing that there was a great deal of resentment of all of the changes the Second Republic was bringing within the military as well. This is hard to understand in retrospect because the military had torn power away from the king not that long ago when they didn't like the direction the country was taking. Why, then, wouldn't they be willing to do the same when there wasn't even a king that needed to be got rid of? Nevertheless, the new government never purged the military of those who had participated in the Rivera dictatorship or had shown right-wing leanings in their pasts. After all, many in the military, like the future dictator Francisco Franco, were ardently Catholic and therefore scandalized by many of the reforms the new constitution presented. They mistakenly thought that officers in the military were loyal to the government and would never rise up against them, perhaps because they had been treated relatively well by the new government. 
The military would at first give the government reasons to trust them, but really they were all bad. Before the military could come into play, Gil Robles, the leader of Theta and the right in parliament, would basically call for the abolition of the Constitution and for Catholic Spain to rise up against Republican Spain. So a member of parliament was against the form of government he had chosen to enter into. Azania, in contrast, famously said that Spain had, quote, ceased to be Catholic, and when a wave of anti-church violence slept through Spain in 1931, said that he would rather all the churches in Spain be burnt than a single Republican harmed. As Minister of War, he refused to call out the Guardia Civil, a civil defense force in between what we in the U.S. would see as police and military, which was hated by many in the lower classes, to put down left-wing violence in many cases. All of these quotes and events led the Catholic right to believe that the government was trying to wipe them out. That these two opposing viewpoints could meet a middle ground was becoming more and more improbable. In what should have been a wake-up call to the Republican government, General José Sanjurjo attempted a revolt against the government in Seville in August 1932. This was in part reaction to an uprising in December of 1931 in the poorer rural locality of Castelblanco, where an organized group of agricultural laborers lynched four members of the Guardia Civil. This was after the Guardia Civil had been directed by local agricultural bosses to attempt to impede a manifestation and a worker was shot. Sanjurjo was the general of the Guardia Civil and was not happy with what he considered the light life sentences that six participants in the lynchings were given. Just to show that there wasn't only violence on one side, only a couple of months later the Guardia Civil would kill six protesters in Arnedo in La Rioja province. All this was going on in addition to military reforms Azania was beginning to put in place, such as the retirement of a great deal of the bloated commissioned officer corps in the army and a paring down of the military as a whole. The government was also in the process of granting more autonomy to the Basque and Catalonian regions, which conservatives always considered a slippery slope towards the dissolution of Spain. Funnily enough, Francisco Franco was fully aware of San Jorge's planned uprising and was asked to join. He demurred as he thought it wasn't very well planned out and didn't have the support of enough sectors of the military and police forces in a sufficient number of places around the country to succeed. He was right. Although Sanjurjo tried to claim that his insurrection was just against the current cabinet and not the republic itself, and he did have some limited successes in Seville, he was taken down by members of the military that remained loyal to the government. He was sentenced to death, but this was commuted to a life sentence. By 1934, he would be given amnesty by another set of ministers and would go into exile in Portugal. The government also made a major enemy in the first two years of the republic by prosecuting the richest man in Spain, Juan March, for corruption. He had made himself insanely rich as a supplier of tobacco and other goods during the First World War, selling to both sides. The fall of the dictatorship and then the monarchy saw him lose favor with those in power. Despite being convicted of crimes in relation to having worked with the dictatorship and smuggling, he managed to bribe his way out of the prison and escape to Gibraltar, where there was no extradition. He'd be around, lying in wait for his opportunity to get back at the Republic that had tried to take away his freedom for what he must have considered normal business dealings. He'd get his chance for revenge soon enough. Things were going from bad to worse in 1933, and the implementation, though slow, of the agrarian reforms and expropriation of church property had animated the right in a way that it had not been in the elections of 1931. 
It was one thing for the government to be anti-clerical, but quite another for you to see your local church burn down, or a procession of the Virgin have to be surrounded by armed guards to prevent the statue from being torn down. The first two years of the Republic had also disillusioned the left, who thought, why did I send all of these left-wing politicians into government if they aren't going to deliver on their promises? As Azania was beset by both the right and the far left, it was only a matter of time until there was a vote of no confidence. This occurred in September of 1933, at which point two-thirds of the Cortes abstained and Azania was called to resign by President Zamora. New elections consequently had to be held. The elections held in mid-November 1933 would further exasperate the political situation as the Theta won a majority of seats while left-wing parties saw themselves losing seats they had only gained two years earlier. Women, who had for the first time been allowed to vote, voted mostly center-right, which must have been frustrating for those on the left that had fought to include that in the Constitution. This was a big deal as the Theta and its, its leader, Gil Robles, were against the Constitution and tacitly approved of fascism. Just like the anti-clerical articles of the Constitution had been deal-breakers for many on the right, the entry of the Theta into a republic that they seemed to vehemently oppose, the existence thereof, was one for the left. This would begin the quote-unquote two black years, when political differences would become even sharper and bloodier. Violence and uprisings on both the left and the right became more and more widespread, making it even more difficult for the tottering government to function. With the Theta about to perhaps take over control of the government, many skeptics of the government on the left were ready to give up on it and take direct action for their immediate cause. The Theta was as interested in making the government dysfunctional as they were in dismantling it entirely. Many in the military were already plotting with those in the right wing for a possible future military coup. Those who wanted the Republic to continue in its current form were becoming vanishingly few. We'll leave it there for this week. Next week, we'll cover the two black years between 1934 and 1936 and introduce the group of conspirators that was planning the downfall of the Republic and the imposition of a traditional Catholic government whose form no one was really certain about at that time. All of this will allow me to give you a more proper introduction to the military leader that will be the major force in Spanish government and politics for the following 40 years. General Francisco Paulino Germenegildo Teodulo Franco Bahamonde, or as he's normally known, General Francisco Franco. Quieres poner bien para dormir.